The readings from Judges 16, verses 16 through 21. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Uh, Grateful for this opportunity to go a little bit deeper into the book of Judges. We have today and next week to finish the story of Samson. And then we have two weeks of a um, kind of an epilogue, really. There's, there's two different stories that really, um, I would say land the plane, but it's more like crash land the plane uh, into a volcano. Uh, the, the ending of the book of Judges definitely leaves you wanting for some hope, definitely leaves you wanting for some redemption. And uh, the good news is we who are Christians who know the end of the story know that we have a redeemer, amen? And so he's who we're here to look at today. Jesus. Uh, That's my intention. That's our intention. Every time we gather together like this is to point us to Jesus. Uh, I wonder if we could just take a moment and pray together before we dive in to uh, Judges chapter 16 here. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, there are times where um, I'm I'm thankful for the honesty. But God, if, if I was to be truthful, there are times where the honesty and the frankness in your word makes me feel uncomfortable. God, I think that many of us All of us, each and every one of us, since the fall of man, have been like Adam and Eve trying to sew together fig leaves to cover our nakedness and our shame. And so, God, I ask and pray that all of our different attempts at covering ourselves to deal with our own internal sense of shame, to deal with the external realities of our own brokenness and the world around us, God, I pray that those would all just fall away today. God, will we uh, be granted the courage, will we be granted the grace to come before you as we are, just as we are, um, that you would meet us where we are, and God, we would get to experience a deeper uh, impartation of your grace today. For myself, I ask that you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that uh, which is in line with the truth of your word and give us all soft and teachable hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you know, as we've been going through the book of Judges, you, you knew it was coming, this, this famous couple, Right? infamous couple, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, think about think about it, like Lancelot and Guinevere, uh, Lucy and Desi, Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, Tristan and Isolde, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, 
Right, that was mostly laughter from the ladies in here. Come on, men. Where are you at? Johnny and June Cash. Yes. All right, thank you. Clark Kent and Lois Lane. Yes. David and Bathsheba. Brangelina. <laughs> Samson and Delilah. This is one of the most famous couples in, in world history, in, in literary history. Obviously, uh, we uh, who are Bible-believing Christians, we believe that the Bible tells a truthful story. So this is not just literature, although it is some of the most fascinating literature that the world has ever produced. We believe that, that the Word of God is true, and it's truthful in what it tells and in what it reports. And Samson and Delilah really lived, and their legacy, for better or for worse— almost entirely for worse, uh, has endured throughout the centuries because there's a lot to see in this story. And, and, and there's a lot to see uh, about the, the brokenness within us. I mean, this is, this is a, an epitome of just a unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy uh, love, an, a selfish sort of a love, as the, uh, as the great American theologian Lady Gaga puts it, you know, caught up in your bad romance, right? That's what we're looking at today. But really... The, 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 the story of Samson is not quite concluded yet, but this is the low point. We started with the highest of hopes for Samson, did we not? Angelic announcements, a mother who was barren, miraculously giving birth, a Nazarite vow, he's going to be pure before the Lord. Well, that didn't go so well, did it? Even throughout the story of Samson, we, we keep getting our hopes up, don't we? It, it says three different times that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson or the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. That's more than any other judge. Other judges had the spirit of the Lord upon them. And Samson was three times. But no more in this story. There's no more spirit of the Lord coming upon him. There's no more uh, interaction with God. Even his, even his prayer that we, we saw last week that Pastor Shane preached, his prayer was just full of self-focus. You know, when I think about kids' Bible stories, even some of the movies or TV shows that are, are made about various Bible heroes, <clears throat> even that phrase, Bible heroes, right? Um, I can think of at least a couple where Samson is portrayed as this great heroic defender fighting against the Philistines and, and leading Israel, but really the reality is he, he's about as big of a disappointment as, as you could ever imagine. He's an anti-hero. It's a very grim picture. The Bible's very honest with us. And so we're going to look at the reality of the depth of, of Samson's tragic downfall. And it just makes me think of our own tendency to sanitize. Our own tendency to make ourselves try to look like a hero. Try to make ourselves look like, um, yeah, I mean, I've got some, got some problems or issues, but really it's, it's not that bad. I'm, I'm this hero. So here's the big idea of where we're going today. The Christian does not need to fear being truly known by God, by others, by yourself. Because even at our very worst, God gave us his very best, Jesus. We don't need to fear being truly known. That's actually one of the two great fears that humankind has. Humankind has a great fear of not being loved or to be truly known, like to really be known with all of our brokenness. And so we're gonna address one of those head on today. So you remember where we've been, Samson, um, you know, he, he's had some confrontations with the Philistines. He hasn't led any sort of army. He's by himself. 
He, he's kind of a one-man wrecking crew. He runs off into the wilderness. He prays that very selfish prayer. And then the end of chapter, chapter 15 of Judges, it says that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So it's kind of an interlude in the Samson story. So most uh, scholars would say that we're kind of fast-forwarding now 20 years in the life and the history of Samson. What's changed? Anything gotten better? No, not really. Let's go ahead and start in, in verse chapter one of, uh, of, sorry, verse one of chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza... And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. So in case your question you know, was left unanswered, how's, how's Samson doing after 20 years? Not so good. A couple of things about this. This is a bridge section. So we've already seen Samson have a, a weakness for women. Uh, if you go back to the story of his marriage in chapter 14, and then the revenge that came out of that in chapter 15. So it's going to bridge us and point us forward to where we're going with Delilah here in just a moment. But we also see a, a particular type of brazenness from Samson that we haven't seen before. Gaza, is, this is going to set up the very final dramatic ending of Samson, but Gaza is one of the five Philistine cities. There are five main cities for the Philistines, five main lords or kings or rulers over the Philistine cities. And so this is kind of setting it up, getting us ready for the final conflict. But his, his pattern is definitely spiraling down. He's now known to the Philistines, by the way. Like, they know him. He's the guy that killed a thousand of them with the, the jawbone of a donkey. And here he goes right into the heart of enemy territory. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait until the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. So Samson is spending the night with a harlot. They assume that he's going to spend the whole night, and in the morning when he gets up early, that's when they're going to catch him. But Samson, verse 3, he lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, <coughs> bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, the Hebrew there, there's a couple of ways of reading it. It may be that he carried it to the top of the hill that was in the direction of Hebron, but most uh, translators would say, no, he carried it to the top of the hill uh, that was in front of Hebron. Do you know how far away that is? About 40 miles. Yeah. Which is why some people are like, did he really go that far? I think the point that the author is trying to make is Samson is very strong and is apparently an endurance athlete as well. <coughs> I mean, this is really a public act of defiance and pride. Samson knows that they're there to catch him. Samson knows that they're surrounding the place where he's laying in the night. And he, there's a reason why he gets up at midnight instead of sleeping the night away. There's a reason why he does this. Picks up, you know, thousands of pounds of material and just, you know, uh, takes off for the hills and just carries it way far away so that they can't even repair or set it back up. He's, he, he's full of pride. He's saying, you can't touch me. You can try all you want. I'm untouchable. Have you ever flirted with that idea of thinking that you're untouchable? Oh, yeah, I mean, other people, yeah, they have problems with this, that, or the other thing, but I, I'm fine. The purpose of this story is to really show us the uh, kind of the head-shaking paradox between Samson's incredible physical strength and his incredible spiritual weakness. I mean, it's about as strong as you can get, about as weak as you can get. That's it. There's no real commentary. It doesn't say the Lord helped him. No spirit of the Lord. It just says Samson did it. It's kind of an interesting little interlude there. Verse four. After this, 
he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. This is interesting because this is the first time in the Samson narrative so far that a woman in his life has been named. His mother is just referred to as the wife of Manoah. The wife from Timnah is just the wife. The harlot is just the harlot. There there hasn't been a single female given a, a, a proper name up until this point. Um, I don't know this for certain, but there's a part of me that, that sees with Samson his, his appetite for um, women, his appetite for sex. I think there is something reflective in the nature of Samson where he doesn't actually care about women. He only cares about himself. To him, the women in his life are simply objects to be used, not humans to be loved and cared for. Uh, that's, that's my intuition. I don't know that for certain, but there might be something there to think about. What I do know for certain, in particular with men that I've worked with and, and pastored, and uh, in my life, the, the experience, I know that, that when, when sex is not used God's way, it has an incredibly dehumanizing effect, does it not? We see this in the world and in the culture in which we live, where um, particularly women but ever increasingly so men, as we live in attempting to be a more egalitarian society, just reduced to objects, just reduced to body parts, just reduced to a type or a title, instead of these these people, images on a screen, that is a human being created in the image and likeness of God. We've taken and and just turned this this, this image bearer into a two-dimensional caricature. He meets this woman, Delilah. Her name in Arabic... If you translate into Arabic, it would mean flirtatious. If you translate into Hebrew, it would mean of the night. So maybe a little bit of a pun, a little double entendre going on here. And the lords of the Philistines, so here's those five lords, <coughs> that, you know, they came to her and they said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So I'm no mathematician, but five times 1,100, that's a lot of silver, okay? The point being, she'll be set for life. Samson is public enemy one. The kings of the Philistines themselves, the lords of the five cities have come directly to her and said, we will make sure that you are taken care of for life if you will use your your feminine wiles to seduce him and to find out where his strength comes from. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies. She's going to go the real subtle route here. And how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. Now, if you were Samson, wouldn't you be at least a little bit suspicious at this point? Samson said to her, well, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, well, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, by the way, those of you who are familiar with the story, you know that later in the story he's asleep. It doesn't necessarily mention that he's asleep right here. He might be asleep, but in my mind, as I'm reading this, I think he might just be standing there. And she's like, well, let's try this out. Let me tie you up. And the lords of the Philistines brought him. And she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to them, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. 
Okay, maybe Samson was sleeping, fine. Maybe he was awake. Either way, he's flirting with danger, is he not? Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. What is, the, what is this saying? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Is that that's where we're going? Please tell me how you might be bound. It's just, what is going on here? I, I tell you this. Um, seems like Samson's not just addicted to women, but he's addicted to danger. He's addicted to the thrill. He's addicted to putting himself into more and more dangerous situations, is he not? He said to her, okay, if they, if they bind me with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. And you'll notice that it doesn't say that the Philistines tried to make a move. They said, okay, we will back off. Third try, Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Oh, and he said to her, notice how close he goes here. Ah, he's going further to the line. If you weave the seven dreadlocks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, well, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, so now he's sleeping, Delilah took the seven locks of his head. Think about Samson was just seven dreadlocks. I don't know. Seems like he'd be a cool guy. It's not very cool. Wove them into the web and she made them tight with a pin and then said to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Now here's, here's where we're going deep. She said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed. What does it say, South City? To death. His soul was vexed to death. Okay, couple of thoughts. First of all, some of you are thinking, why doesn't he just, like, leave her? Like, she's trying to kill him and vexing him to death. Now he wants to kill himself. He's so annoyed with her. Like, why doesn't he leave? But that's the, that's the nature of this, this type of sin, this type of addiction, this type of enslavement. I bet you if we pressed and we pushed, we could look at each and every single one of our lives in some area. Well, why don't they just leave that? Why don't they just stop? Why don't they quit fill in the blank? Sin has an enslaving force, right? And he told her all of his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Verse 18, now when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she could tell. She could tell. This was different than the other times. She now knows. Oh, he, he actually was honest with me this time. 
She sent and called the lords of the Philistines. So not just some foot soldiers. Go and get the kings themselves. I've got it this time. Come again, for he has told me all his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. He fell asleep on her lap. Trusting position of vulnerability, affection should be. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. That word torment is quite interesting, is it not? I don't, I don't, the, full, the fullness of it, it's hard to really understand what's being said there, the, the word in the Hebrew, but afflict or harass, it could be as simple as she started to shake him to, to try to get him to wake up, or it could be as much as she started to mock him that she gotcha. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. And the most tragic verse in this story, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza back to the city where he had been with the harlot, gates that he had ripped off. They brought him back to that city and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. And in that day and in that culture, grinding out the grain for the Philistines, this would have either been the work of women or slaves. So here's Samson, the mighty warrior, the mighty hero has been reduced in the Philistines' eyes to the lowest of the low. Blind, his head shaved, bound in bronze shackles, doing the work of a slave, utterly humiliated. And we'll end this week with verse 22, with a little glimmer of hope. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. All right. At this point, you're like, it's really sunny outside. <laughs> I could have gone to a beach. I could have gone. Why are, we, why are we reading this story? That was depressing. Yes, yes it is. Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. <clears throat> Friends, there's some important things we need to see. By the way, we, we have as a value at our church, we like to take books of the Bible and we like to just go as much as possible, as often as possible, just line by line, verse by verse, through books of the Bible, because it forces us to confront certain topics and ideas that maybe we wouldn't want to naturally. And so that's, we're thankful for this opportunity, right? Uh, the, 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 the scriptures themselves say that all of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's, it's profitable for, for teaching, instruction, rebuking, correcting, and, and training us in righteousness. So there's something to learn here. And I think there's a few things that we, we need to learn. And the first one is this. And this is a, this is a point that, that was made by uh, our good friend Darren Larson from Imprint Church. He came and preached for us in March about the downfall of Gideon. But it bears repeating here with the downfall of Samson again. It's this. Success can be incredibly dangerous. Success can be incredibly dangerous. Now, when, when, you, when you hear that, it flies in the face of most everything that our culture would say. It flies in the face of a lot of what church uh, culture would say. There's a lot of books out there, both secular and 
quasi-Christian or so-called Christian about how to have all of the success you could ever hope for, all the success you could ever dream of right now, your, your best life now sort of a thing. There are a lot of books for pastors, how to break through that barrier and take your church to the next level. There's not enough books for pastors or for church leaders about how to be there slogging through the mess and the grime of yet another week of pastoral ministry with people's lives blowing up. For you as Christians, for you as Americans, I'm assuming most of you here, you have been uh, inundated with this idea of what you need is more, bigger, faster, more success, more credit, more applause, more fame, when the reality is that the word of God would consistently teach us that while those things may come and while those things may have some good aspects to them, they are also incredibly dangerous. Think about the success in the life of Samson. He killed a lion with his bare hands. Anybody here done that? No, okay? None of you have. And if you tell me you have, you're lying and I will call you out, okay? He killed 30 Philistines with his bare hands and took their clothes. He went Muay Thai, hip and thigh, fighting against the men of Timnah, and he took them all out. He went and snapped heavy rope that bound him. He killed a thousand men with a dead donkey's jawbone. He carried away the stinking gates of the city, okay? Anybody want to go out and try to, you know, like, you know, pick up and carry Steve's truck after the service? Like, no, you can't do it. He's had a lot of success. He has gotten away with a lot. But his great weakness, all of his exploits, think about this, guys. All of Samson's great exploits have actually been self-serving. On the surface, from from a human perspective, now we know that God is sovereign. He's always orchestrating things. But from a human perspective, Samson has not moved Israel one inch closer to worship of Yahweh or faithfulness to him, has he? Nothing that he has done has uh, explicitly benefited the people of God. All that it has done is benefit himself. And he's got away with it. And he's enjoyed being able to go and, and sleep with this woman or sleep with that woman or, or fight this fight. Or he just, he's been able to experience a level of success. But it's, it says in the Bible in Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. <laughs> I, uh, so on Monday... You guys, you guys know about Mondays? Like, they're not the greatest often. <laughs> and uh, Monday morning, I got into the office, and I, I got my, I got, I have like four email accounts. I got all of them down to zero before noon. And then I went and took my lunch break, went and, went to the gym and I like had just a really great workout. And then I, I came back and I had a few like projects I was working on. And then I dove into sermon prep for the afternoon and I'm like just chugging. I'm like, I am having the best Monday ever. And I get to this part and I read pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I'm like, guys, come pray for me right now. <laughs> this is not going well. How, how many of you have ever been in that place where you're feeling successful you're feeling like you got things handled, some sort of an attitude or of like, I got this starts to creep in. That's actually when you're in your most precarious position. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. Let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Samson was presuming upon God's grace, was he not? He did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, this is a much bigger topic. I, I do not believe that if you are a Christian, 
uh, there is such a thing as losing your salvation. If you, really belo- if you really belong to God, if you've really been born again, that is, a, that is life everlasting that comes into your life. I don't believe that. But I do believe that you and I, as people of God, can pre- presume upon God's grace in such a way that he will allow you to feel what it feels like in your life when he removes his sovereign hand of grace, even just a, a millimeter. Do you realize how much grace we live under on a day-to-day basis? And I've had some of those experiences in my life where it feels like God's just covering me. I'm under his grace. And then he, he just, all right, Aaron, you, you think this is you? Just pull back just a little bit. Just, just a little bit. Because if he removed his hand of grace, well, I would die. Be careful. Seattleites. A lot of success happening right now, right? Business is booming. Housing markets off the, off the charts. We are a very prosperous region in the world. One of the, one of the most prosperous regions in the world. And you might be lulled into a false sense of security because you have, you know, magically all of a sudden a half million dollars of equity in your house. It's like a two-bedroom you know, rambler or something like that for a <laughs> million and a half dollars, whatever. And, you know, it's just ridiculous, Right? Oh, look at the way the tech industry is booming. Amazon just moved 20,000 employees into downtown. They're building towers left and right. It is, it is on the knife's edge, and we should be smart enough, both just from practical experience, but also from spiritual wisdom, to know that none of that stuff lasts. Please, friends, don't be lulled into a false sense of security or pride because success is really dangerous. Number two, I want you to see that temptation comes from all different sides. I'm just thinking about Samson. Like, if, if, you were, if you were able to sit with Samson, like, after the fact and talk to him, bro, why, why, did, you, why did you give in? What's with, what's with the prostitute? And what's with Delilah? And what's with the, like, you know, risky behavior and telling her and flirting with danger and staying in the town and ripping out the gate? Like, what's, what's with all of that? I wonder if he would say something like, well, you know, the devil made me do it. Maybe he would. At his worst, he seems like he'd, he'd be pretty keen on blame shifting. I wonder if Samson would say something like, well, you know, it's just the culture that we live in. It's just the world that we live in. Everybody's doing it. This is just kind of how everybody, you know, behaves, and, and this is just kind of the way it works. Or I wonder if he would say, I just wanted to. In the, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, going, going forward into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he, he writes about the way that we struggle with temptation, and, and he actually identifies All three of those factors, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says this. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then it says this. Look, following the course of the world. Go go to that next slide so we can just kind of see that that, uh, that pulled out, that emphasizer. Following the course of the world. Okay. We do live in a world... Uh, a culture, the, 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 the systems in play, the ideologies in play, the media, the government, all of those things. Friends, let me tell you, those things do have an effect on us. You see something that you, you desire because the world makes it look desirable. We, we do live in a fallen and broken world, so we do not want to discount that, right? And we do have an enemy. It says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, so we do have an enemy. Christians, we believe the Bible. We believe that there is an enemy. His name is Satan or the devil. 
And he is not equal to God. He is, he is a created being. He is, he is not as powerful as God, but he does have a tremendous amount of power and he wields that power to lure us, to tempt us, to entice us, to turn away from God and to turn towards our own desires. But that's the part that we have to land on. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, there's the part that you have to own. Yeah, we do have an enemy who tempts us. Yeah, we do live in a world that that makes all sorts of sinful things look attractive and enticing, but those things wouldn't work if it wasn't for your sinful desires. Nobody forces you to fall into sin. Nobody forces you to give into temptation. I remember having a conversation one time with a man who had committed adultery repeatedly on his wife, and he said to me, Well, I didn't want to. And I said a word to him that meant not true. (laughs) Because he needed to hear it, okay? Not a recommended pastoral move, but this guy needed to hear it. Nonsense. And after we talked for a little while, he was able, by God's grace, he was able to see, actually, he did want it. He did have the desire. He wanted it. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul, actually that same verse I just read a minute ago, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Don't, don't presume upon God's grace. Don't, don't be prideful. But it says this, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. So friends, you are not some special case. In the throes of your temptation, in the throes of your uh, frustrations, you're not unique or alone. God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that good news to anyone? I hope it's good news to you, but if we're being honest, it's also kind of bad news because I do not take every way of escape that God provides for me, and I often give in to sin. Anybody with me? We're just getting real here today. The weather's too nice outside. It's Seattleites. So we got to get a little grumpy, right? God's provided you every possible way of escape, and you and I have scorned his grace. Temptation comes in from all sides. The part that's really, really often the most hard for us to own is our own passions and desires. Which leads me to the third thing I want us to see here is this. So-called freedom can really be slavery. Freedom, what our world thinks is freedom, what the devil tempts us with freedom, what we in our, in our fleshly passions think of as freedom, can actually really be slavery. Now, I, I don't want to be uh, anachronistic here. I don't want to try to, you know, superimpose kind of modern ideas on the story of Samson, but I, I will. Um, I... <laughs> I don't want to, but I will. I didn't want to. I just, I had to. But think about this. If, if Samson lived in our day, and if he was exhibiting these types of behaviors, what category or what label would we put on Samson? He's a sex addict? You, you hear about celebrities, you know, checking into rehab, and, and we're pretty used to hearing, you know, drug or alcohol rehab. But I remember even 10, 15 years ago when it first started hitting the, the news that certain celebrities were, were visiting um, rehab because of sexual addiction, that they just could not stop their sexual behaviors despite uh, 
bad consequences despite the, the fact that they didn't want to or they said they didn't want to. And, and the other part about it that really makes me think this is with the danger, the danger aspect. Particularly for many men, um, when, when, a, when an addiction to pornography or, or sexuality, when it goes really, really deep, is when you start to see the more and more risky behaviors and it's actually less about the sexual pleasure and it's, it's more about that whole, the, the thrill of the hunt, if I could use that phrase. There's a, there's a, a lot that could be said about addiction. Um, you know, w- in our culture, we, we use that language of addiction. I googled around a little bit. I found one that I thought just put it nicest from a website called mentalhealth.net and it just says simply, addiction is the repeated involvement with a substance or activity despite the substantial harm that it now causes. Because that involvement was, and may continue to be, pleasurable and or valuable. I think that's a really decent working definition of addiction. The Bible does not use the language of addiction. You know what the Bible uses the language of? Enslavement. You're stuck, you're trapped. For example, Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be, what's the word, Sound City? Enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. We have a sin addiction. Oh, I can quit anytime I want. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> and, and things like Sex or gambling or substance abuse, those ones are maybe kind of more on the surface. They're a little bit more obvious. What about your gossiping? I could quit gossiping anytime I want. What about your jealousy and your envy and your covetous heart that sees the neighbor across the street list their house, put it on the market, and you go and you pick up the flyer because all you really want to do is compare how much nicer and better and more expensive their house is than yours. What about you parents that show up at school or preschool and you see the other kids and they just, they get out of the car, they seem like they're all well-dressed and well-behaved and you're all covetous and jealous and comparing yourself to them because you know that you just barely didn't break the law getting your kids into the car to get them to school that morning, right? What about those of you that are just full of cowardice and fear? You know that you have the spirit of God. You know you've got people in your corner, but every time something hard or challenging comes your way, you just run away. It's kind of a dark story, right? Should, I should get an amen on that one, right? Start asking this question. Why are stories like this in the Bible, okay? Uh, for those of you who've been around, you're like, okay, I know that Pastor Aaron is going to move us towards the gospel of Jesus somewhere and somehow but I'm not sure how he's going to do it. Let, let, me just, let me just say, stories like this, I believe are meant to serve as a mirror for us to look into. There's a, a Bible commentator and a pastor, Dale Ralph Davis, he, he, put, he puts it this way. Why tell Israel this story? Why did Israel need to hear this? Because Samson was intended as a mirror for Israel. In Samson, Israel was to see herself. Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One who was raised up out of nothing, richly gifting, 
who panders around with other lovers and yet apparently always expects to have Yahweh. Think about the story of Israel. Think about the story of the people of God in general up to this point. Isn't that a fitting parallel? Samson serves as a portrait. So Israel has received grace on top of grace, yet persistently carries her affairs with Baal, utterly ignorant of her true condition, blithely assuming that all is well and that Yahweh is always at her disposal. She is a people who does not know that Yahweh may depart from her. Listen to this. Just as a church may believe that God would never write Ichabod or apostate over its denominational headquarters. How tragic when God's professing people cannot see that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Whether to ancient Israel or to the contemporary church, Samson's tragedy still speaks, watch out, lest you abandon the divine call, leave your first love, and forfeit the divine presence. Sound City, today is an invitation and an opportunity to really honestly look in the mirror and you walk up to the mirror, if you, if you do so, and you look like, well, that's, that's very distorted. That's very messed up. Maybe this is one of those carnival mirrors or funhouse mirror that warps or distorts things. And I would say to you, no, the Bible would say that we are the ones that are bent and warped and distorted. And you have three choices. When you honestly look in the mirror of your own sinfulness, your own depravity, your own brokenness, you have three choices, okay? Choice number one is denial. Denial. It's really not that bad. Everybody's this way. When I compare myself to someone else, okay, that doesn't work spiritually, but it also just doesn't work practically in real life, does it? How many of you, if your car is making a horrendous sound, like, like a bunch of squirrels got sucked up into the differentials, and you, you go and it's belching like blue, purplish, even almost smoke, and you, you take it to a mechanic, like, I, I need to know what's going on here, and they say, ah, oh, it's nothing. We're just going to, you know, top off the radiator fluid. You should be fine. Is that really what you want? You go into the doctor because you're having, like, massive chest pains and you're having difficulty breathing. Oh, well, here's a, here's a cough drop. You'll be fine. Is that really what you want? No, you don't. You want a mechanic. You want a doctor. You want someone who's going to look at you and tell you, listen, the news is really grim. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. We're going we're gonna to find a way, but i got to tell you the truth. It's cancer. It's a heart attack. It's whatever it might be. You want that in the real world. Why would you not want that in the spiritual world? Fig leaves. That's what Adam and Eve did. In the garden, Genesis chapter 3, they sin. They rebel against God. It says that their eyes are open. They realize that they were naked. They were ashamed. And so they went and they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness. And for thousands of years of human history, all we have done is get a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more clever about our fig leaves. It's denial. The other option not denial, it's just despair. Oh, my car is blowing up. Oh, it is cancer. I guess I'll just go jump off a bridge. Self-destruct, meltdown, pity party, woe is me. I can't help myself. I can't do anything about it. This is just how I am. I don't have the money to fix the car. I don't have the time to go to the doctor. I don't have the strength to take steps forward spiritually. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Please, please don't. You can if you want, but you don't have to. 
But just to think, how many of you are more prone to the denial ditch? It's okay, it's gonna be fine, don't worry about it. How many of you are prone to the despair ditch? I am horrible and worthless and a worm and there's no hope for me. So the reality is, those are your, those are your first two choices, but we, as Christians, have a third choice. It's the way of the gospel. It's the way of the gospel. A gospel that does not give place to denial or pride, to say, oh, everything's just peachy keen, it's all fine. A, a gospel that does not give place to despair because we have hope. We have hope. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says, while we were still weak. Can you say still weak? Still weak. It's like, like not once we had gotten our act together. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Raise your hand if you're the ungodly. And I hope to God that you raise your hand because that's the only kind of people that Christ died for. Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, say still sinners, still weak, still sinners, not got it all together, not figured it all out, not cleaned ourselves up, not turned our lives around, not seeking for God, not looking for God, not trying to impress God, that's when Christ died for us. That's when Jesus went to the cross, shedding his blood, taking a punishment that we deserve, not just the physical punishment, but the spiritual punishment of having the very wrath of God against sin and ungodliness poured out on him at the cross. And then Jesus, while he's on the cross, is crying out words of love, crying out words of forgiveness to his enemies. Do you know that that's the type of salvation that is available to us? And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, blowing away everyone's expectations and proving that he truly is God and he truly can forgive sin. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means that at our very worst, God's love is even better. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that we have latched a hold of as Christians. And if you are a Christian, this is your lifeblood. If you are a Christian, not only is this message of the gospel what gets you started on the path of following Jesus, but this message of the gospel is the fuel by which you will continue to live for Jesus. As Christians, we never graduate past the gospel. We just keep coming back to it day after day after day as we grow in God's grace. Some of you have been Christians for a good long while and you look at your life and you think, man, how am I still, and fill in the blank, God's God's not done with you yet. There's nothing that you can do that will surprise Jesus. There are sins that you have not yet committed. You don't know about them because you are not all-knowing and you are in time. But God is all-knowing and he is boundless. And you're not going to commit some sin. And Jesus goes, wait, what did, what did they do? Oh, if I had known that, I totally would not have gone to the cross, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what's going to happen. God's grace is greater than even our very worst sin. I, it's almost become a cliche at this point, but he, he puts it so well 
It's worth reading and worth quoting him. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Samson didn't know this. Samson didn't believe this. One of the hymns that we sing here, Come Ye Sinners from Joseph Hart says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Is that good news? The only thing that you need to bring is your sense of how much you need God. For those of you who are here today who are, who are not Christians, um, I, I know you, you may be saying something like, <clears throat> see, this is why I don't like to go to church. I just spend time talking about how bad we all are. And I would, I would just simply like to offer to you with a heart of love, I, I hope you can sense a sincere heart of love. Um, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I, I think if you were being more honest about your own internal sense of shame, your own internal sense of struggle, and then you connect the dots to what the Bible says about the fact that we've all wandered away from God, we've all made a mess of our lives, we all are in desperate need of Him, I think you would start to see the reason why we talk about this is so that we can genuinely receive the gospel, the cure. So today is a day. You, you're invited. Come, receive of God's grace. There is no one who is too far gone that God will not extend his grace to you. Oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I don't, but God does. And his offer to you today is salvation, the gift of salvation through the grace poured out through Jesus on the cross. For those of you who are Christians, you might, you might have some of the same objections. See, you're just talking about how bad we are again. And I would simply say to you, we need to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We need to continue to assess ourselves with sobriety. By the way, we should not go into the ditch of celebrating how messed up and broken we are. Sometimes churches can do that. Sometimes Christians can do that. Oh, isn't it great that we're all messed up? No, it's terrible. Stop. But we don't have to fear being truly known, having an honest look at ourselves, because while we were still weak and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can be honest with your family. You can be honest with your community group. You can be honest with yourself. You can be honest with God in your prayers because of the blood of Jesus. God, I pray today that you would give us by your grace the ability to honestly look at ourselves. God, if we're being honest, there's much more of Samson in each of us than we dare to admit. But God, I pray that by doing so, we would see how powerful and beautiful your grace is toward us. God, for those who are here today who, who have not yet 
received your grace, your saving grace. God, I ask and pray that you would enable them to just in humility come to you to say, God, I, I have made a mess of things. I do experience shame. I do experience brokenness. I do sin and, and break your law. And God, I want to receive your grace today because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he died and rose again, I can be forgiven. God, I ask and pray that they would receive that grace even now as we turn to you in a time of response. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we're now going to respond to God in a few ways. And we're going to start by giving of our tithes and offerings. I'll ask the volunteers to begin uh, collecting the offering. And as they do so, I would just remind you, this is an act of worship. This is not a, a time to, again, get yourself in a, a good place before God. Let me show God how deserving I am of his grace by how much I tithe. No, not that at all. This is a response to the grace that he has poured out upon us. Um, there's a number to text to give if you'd like to do that, or you can give online while they're collecting the offering and then before they pass out the elements for communion. Let me read some questions, okay? I, I hope these are helpful to you in your community groups. It says, uh, let's, let's take some time for honest reflection. Where do you see yourself in the life of Samson? Why do you think that we are often afraid or unwilling to honestly look at our sin, weakness, and brokenness? Why is that? Number two, why do you think that we often view our sinful behavior as freedom? What is it about our fallen condition that causes us to end up enslaved? Number three, when it comes to temptation, how can we acknowledge the pressure that comes from the world and the devil but still help each other fight against the flesh? And then number four, how encouraging is it to you to know that God's love came to us when we were at our worst and that his grace is greater than our sin? How does an honest look at the reality of our sin make you love Jesus and appreciate his grace that much more? And then a couple things I'd like to encourage you to pray about. Pray that God would give us as Christians the ability to look honestly at our sin and brokenness and that it would lead us to praise God for his grace. And then number two, Pray for opportunities to share God's love with those people who don't yet know Jesus and are still enslaved by sin and shame. I want you, for you who are Christians right now, can you just think of somebody in your life that you know who doesn't yet know Jesus and just that enslavement and the, the being bound up in sin and shame that they experience? You guys can pass out. Uh, just think about them. And, and genuinely, I, I just implore you, will you pray for them this week? And even beyond that, will you look for opportunities to share the goodness of God's grace with them. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. This is a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, his, his blood that was poured out for our sinfulness because of our sinfulness. And so as we receive this today, let's receive this as a way that God ministers his grace to us. Uh, I say something here before I read this passage. This I believe that there's something sacred about this meal. And I know we do this together every single week. But as we eat of this bread and as we drink of this cup, I, I believe that Jesus meets with us in a, in a supernatural and even a mysterious sort of way. This is one of the ways that God, he ministers his grace in our hearts. So as you eat and as you drink today, after taking a time of reflection, I pray that you would experience more of his grace. I'll invite our musicians to come up as we begin to prepare for singing and reflection as well. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Friends, Sound City, this is for you, for your sinfulness. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new agreement that you have with God that your sins are washed away. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. This is that opportunity to look into the mirror we've talked about. And after having done so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me pray for us one more time. God, we ask now that as we come to you during this time of reflection and this time of celebrating the Lord's table, this time of worshiping you through song, I ask and I pray, God, that we could feel the weight of our sinfulness, but, but more so, more than that, God, we would feel the exhilaration of knowing that our sins are forgiven. God, help us to know that deeper than we've ever known it. Whether we've been walking with Jesus for, for, for three months or three decades, may we know it deeper than we ever have before. We pray this all in Jesus' good name, amen.